sermon series. We're here uh, in 1 John chapter 5. Are you a biblical overcomer? And I wanted to add the adjective of biblical. We need to make sure we zero in on being a biblical overcomer. But are you a biblical overcomer? Overcomers, by definition, prevail over something or someone in spite of adversity. They win. They conquer what is confronting them. Uh, Betty Robinson was an unknown runner who won Olympic gold in the 100 meter in 1928 at the age of 16, uh, the first woman to win gold in Olympic track and field. And it looked like she would have a long career in front of her. Uh, She was discovered, I think, by one of her teachers as she was racing to catch a train. Uh, And the teacher said, hmm, that that girl's fast. And then got her to try out for track. And and within a month, she made the Olympic team and she wins the gold. Looks like she has a career uh, unchecked in front of her. She beat all the fastest uh, racers. There was a Canadian lady. uh, There was a lot of controversy around it, but she ends up with the first gold uh, for a woman in track and field. But that's not to be for her. Three and a half years later, she's involved in a plane crash. Uh, She ends up in the hospital, uh, broken bones, obviously. She's in a coma for a period of time. She gets out of the hospital and she's in a wheelchair and on crutches for four months. Obviously, she doesn't make the 1932 Olympics. When she's finally healed, her injured leg is a half inch shorter uh, than her other leg is. And she doesn't run in a competition for another three and a half years. But she does make the 1936 Olympics. She doesn't run the 100 meter because her injury makes it impossible for her to crouch down at the start. But she does make it on the women's 100 meter relay race. And she ends up helping the United States win gold in that category. Uh, Interesting enough, Hitler was watching that, was sure that the Germans would win and they tripped or dropped something, and the U.S. ends up winning. And I wrote down, she overcame seemingly impossible circumstances to both run and actually win again. The list could go on from athletics to academics, business, or even life in general. We can read stories of those who have overcome, those who've gained the victory over the obstacles that are confronting them. They were overcomers. Interestingly, one of John's descriptions of believers is overcomers. Actually, out of the 28 times that overcomer is used in Scripture, John uses it 24 of those times. And you can see that he is passionate or fascinated with describing believers as overcomers. Uh, The concept of overcoming was popular among Greeks, but they viewed overcoming as something that the gods could accomplish. This is not humanly possible. This is only what the gods can do. But in this letter, John states that regular human Christians overcome. They're given the invincibility associated only with the gods. So I want you to see how dramatic his statement is. You are going to be overcomers. Their culture of the day is saying the only people that can overcome are the gods. Humans cannot overcome. They cannot conquer the world. They can't do that. And, the, and John is saying to them, no, you as believers will overcome. You're going to conquer the world. They overcame, as one writer describes, the invisible spiritual system of evil hostile to God, a place filled with carnal ambition, pride, greed, selfishness, and pleasure, all of which constitute the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and to help you with the pride of life or the pride of lifestyle. That's the idea behind that. That's 1 John 2.16. 
But how do you know when someone is a biblical overcomer? Well, John is going to make it clear here. You'll look for a defining object of their faith, which, by the way, is a doctrinal question. You're going to look for a defining characteristic, which is going to be a moral question. And you're going to look for a defining action, which then becomes a behavioral question. We're going to begin by examining the who. Who are we having faith in? What is the object of our faith? This is the doctrinal question. And you see it in the first part of of verse 1, and you see it expounded on 4 and 5. I'm going to read those again. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Jump down to verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Spurgeon noted on this passage that the faith intended in the text evidently rests upon a person, upon Jesus. It's not a belief about a doctrine. It's not an opinion, and it's not a formula. It's belief concerning a person, and it's a belief in him completely. The foundational mark of an overcomer is believing that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the Son of God. You could say, Kenny, we've heard this. John has said this before. I've said this over and over in the book. First through third John, it is not your logical argument and a PowerPoint presentation. John is moving through the faith. He's very much, uh, it's very much like real life. And so he's coming back again to a topic. His point is being an overcomer. How he's going to prove that point is going to be things he's talked about through the whole book. And we're coming back to the centering in on Jesus Christ. He's again emphasizing, you believe all of what Jesus said he is and accomplished. You acknowledge every role he fulfills. And I want to trace back briefly one of the attacks that was facing the church and is facing the church even today is they undermine what Christ has done. So people will believe, well, I believe in the God of love, but I don't believe in a God that judges. I believe in a God who will do this, but I don't believe in a God who does that. I believe God handles that. I don't believe God handles this. And John is confronting the church who had, who had picked out the characteristics of Christ. I'll believe a Christ that does X, but not the Christ that says he does Y. And what he's trying to say to them is, you will believe all of what Christ said he is and accomplished. You're going to acknowledge every role he fulfills. You can summarize that with prophet, priest, and king. He reveals the way of salvation as the prophet. He provides the way of salvation as the priest, and he's the sole only propitiating priest. And he rules as the way of salvation. That is him as king. And by the way, our world struggles the most with Christ who rules, who has authority. Spurgeon asked a really Uh, I was reading some of the stuff he had written about this, a really heart-revealing question here. He says this, Is Jesus, who is now exalted in heaven, who once bled on the cross, is he king to me? Is his law my law? Do I desire entirely to submit myself to his government? Do I hate what he hates and love what he loves? By the way, that's a critical thought right there in our world. Because you're going to be confronted with what our culture wants to love versus what Christ loves. And you're going to be confronted with what our culture wants to hate and what Christ says we should hate. And that's going to hit any believer in their face. And so many in the church 
capitulate to the demands of culture, and all they're saying to their Savior is, you're not king. What you demand is not what I will follow. Uh, Do I hate what he hates and love what he loves? Do I live to praise him? Do I, as a loyal subject, desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? True faith is fixated on the Savior King, a belief in him completely. And it also is a belief that overcomes. If you look at verse 1, it's speaking, the word believeth is not a past tense verb there. A lot of times you say, I believed and on Jesus Christ, and that's good. But believeth is actually not a past tense verb. It's actually in the present tense. It's talking about what's taking place now. It's saying here, whosoever believes, whoever is believing is the indication here. When we are saved, it results in continual faith. That is a fruit of salvation. So when John is writing, he's, he's not thinking past. And he's talked about our past and he moves through. But I want us to see when he talks about an overcomer, he is fixating in or zeroing in on people who are believing. This is a person who is believing in Christ. That continual faith is then what overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And, and he's being very down to earth. He's saying, what, what wins the battle? And he's speaking very subjectively. It's your faith. Your active faith in him is going to be what brings victory there. Adrian Rogers remarks that faith in faith is just positive thinking. But faith in Jesus is salvation. A lot of people say, I have faith. I have faith. We live in a world that believes in something. You ever encounter someone that says, well, I don't believe in anything. Well, that statement alone is ridiculous because they just said they believe in something. So recognize that when they come back and say, well, you have your religion, but I believe in science. That's a faith. It's just faith in faith is only positive thinking. Faith in Jesus results in salvation. A biblical overcomer has faith in Jesus Christ, not just a creed or tradition. He is the foundational object in whom they believe because they believe in someone, not just something It's easy to get caught up in tradition or a background of faith, and and I'm not knocking that at all. I am extremely grateful for my background of faith. Uh, We can trace it back to my mom's dad, who is walking by in Jersey, so something happened good in New Jersey, and uh, he walked by a church and saw joy. He walks in and asks them, why are you happy? And that is the faith journey uh, for my family in history uh, through my mom, my dad uh, gets, encounters Christ, becomes a believer, and that is the tradition. And I'm grateful for what my parents have done and being taught Scripture, being brought under the teaching of God's Word. But that is not the basis of my faith. My faith has a direct line of sight to the Savior. So as we launch into what it means to be a biblical overcomer, I want you to think of the word active faith. And that's the point of verse one. And that's why John writes in the present tense uh, on purpose. And by the way, the Greek have innumerable verb tenses. So when they pick one, it's there for a reason. He wants you to dive in. He's telling the church, you have an active, alive faith. It's not something you hung on the wall from the past. It is a faith that you have as as a fruit of salvation. You have faith, you're believing, 
And who are you believing in? In Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. And so as you look at this idea of overcoming, you have to ask yourself this. Do I seriously have my faith firmly fixed on Christ alone? What is what is the object of my faith? And I say seriously, and later on I'm going to say have an honest evaluation because I know when I'm asked that question as a believer, I quickly respond with whatever I think the right answer should be. I know what the right answer is, so I'm going to spout it out. I'm asking us to, to dive in and say, is my faith fixated on the Savior, firmly fixed on Christ completely? It's Christ alone and it's Christ completely. We have a mutual fund mentality when it comes to Christianity. We will take part of Jesus, but we don't buy into all of it using that kind of mentality. We think we pick and choose what we can believe in. And John has been very adamant in the most loving and kind way because he, I believe, writes in a beautiful, when I say soft way, Paul kind of punches you in the face. And John kind of walks beside you. But what's fascinating is when John gets firm, it's that, you know, you ever walk with somebody, and I, don't ever do this to me. I don't want someone walking with me with their arm around me. But if someone puts their arm around you, and then as a parent, and you're just loosely doing that, and the next thing you know, the shoulder is gripped, and now you don't have an option but to walk with them. Um, that's John in these serious moments. As he locks in, he's walking beside you, but he, 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 he's now really directing you in a serious way. And, and John has been very serious about believing in Christ completely, that your faith is fixated on him. And so as a biblical overcomer, you must have your faith, fix, faith fixed on him alone and on him completely. And the question he's asking that church is, is your faith firmly fixed on Christ alone and firmly fixed on Christ completely? You see, the biblical overcomer has been transformed by their belief in Jesus Christ. They have a new nature because of him, creating a change of character, which is evidenced now by examining the what. So as we work through this, and this is going to be the defining moral characteristic. Look at verse 1 at the end, and you can, you can bleed into verse 2, and, and that kind of covers two points because all of it flows together. It says, And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. In other words, if you're going to love the Father, then you're going to love his children. You're going to love both. You can't split it apart. And then verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And so he's going back to that same topic. And here again, we see that the what is the defining moral characteristic and it's love. And you're going to say, man, Kenny, we've talked about love so many times. That's because John has constantly returned to this theme of love. I think that's on purpose. I don't know if this is encouraging or not, but it seems the early church struggled with the same thing we struggle with, loving believers, loving God's children, loving God. And so John keeps reminding them, you should love the church. Uh, one writer notes this, the new birth brings people not only into a faith relationship with God, but also a love relationship with him and his children. John is, is, has been adamantly doing this. It's going to continue through the other two letters. He is going to constantly remind us that we love God and we're going to express that love to God should be seen in how we love his children, which is the church. 
This doesn't mean we condone everything that his children do, but it means we love his children. An overcomer is going to love. He spends and has spent considerable time on the importance of love. Our whole last sermon, chapter 4, 7 through 21, spoke in depth of the result and the witness of of love. The fact is, the overcomer will love God completely. What is loving God? Well, one, I'm going to tell you what it's not. It's not fickle emotion or sentiment. It's not the feeling I have. We oftentimes come to church or engage in um, even reading his word. I don't know if you've been guilty of this. I know I have at times. You're going to read God's word to get something for you to fix an emotion, to appease a hurt. And really, we go to God's word, and we're going to talk about that, to hear about God, which is what we need to hear, but maybe not necessarily what we are looking for at the moment. We go to love God completely. It's no fickle emotion or sentiment. We're not loving God just because he made me feel good about my day and my choices and my career and my life and my kids and my wife, whatever it may be. It's not a a, a fickle emotion or sentiment. Instead, it is a love that seeks to honor, please, and obey God. And we're going to dive into that as we close out on this idea of obedience. Loving God involves seeking his glory. It's seeking to fulfill his will. It's seeking to obey him. That is the love of God. The biblical overcomer will also love God's children completely. And I know this point has been hammered in And whenever you're writing a sermon, I'm always thinking through what I've said before. And I mean, I've said this before. We've talked about this before. People are going to zone out more than they normally zone out. This is is what we're going to face here. But Scripture repeats itself. And one of the things you learn when you're learning to read Scripture, you look for things that are repeated, things that are emphasized. Well, that's exactly what John is doing here. Here, when we love God's children completely, we decide to love. We make a choice that because they are God's children, we will love them sacrificially. We will meet the needs of the church. As you walk through, as we walked through in Sunday school, and I didn't quite finish, but at the end of Acts 2, you watch the church love God's children and care for them in a very sacrificial way. I read this passage last week. I'm going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says this, charity, and that's a word for love, love suffereth, charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." And I read it again on purpose because that is describing what God's love is and what he wants our love to be for his children. And that's a very long descriptive list of sacrifice. It's not talking about the worth of the one loved. It's talking about the type of love that's given to his children. The biblical overcomer is characterized by love Because that is exactly who God is. He says this, God is love. And so you as a believer are going to manifest that and you're going to desire to manifest that. Why? Because God is love. 
And if God is love and we're supposed to become like Christ, which Paul makes very clear, then we as a biblical overcomer, as we as John kind of throws us back into the active part of life. As, as you walk this world in the everyday, as you go to work, as you do your job, whether you put roofs on, whether you wire houses, whether you run a business, whether you test water, no matter what it is, as you walk into life, then you are going to love. This is going to be a characteristic of who you are. You're going to manifest that. John, in his description of an overcomer, emphasizes again the importance of love. Without biblical love, you will not overcome the world. Because that's the other side of that. A biblical overcomer has love. That means someone who does not overcome doesn't have love. If you don't have love, you're not going to overcome the world. The character of God's love must be evident in the life of a believer. And I know that's, when I say a line in the sand idea, but that's the truth behind it. Because a biblical overcomer believes Everything about Jesus Christ believes in him exclusively and completely. That person then is going to become like Christ. That is the the growth there. And you cannot become like Christ and manifest zero love. And so as you face this without love, this world, you will be overcome by the world. You will not overcome it. So as we often have done through the book of 1 John, we ask ourselves, do we have biblical love? Because again, John is, is pushing back to the church and saying, basically, you're unloving. This point is being made over and over again. And we've, we've worked through it. I know even myself, I start forgetting what's happened. And what's been taking place in this church is a lot of arrogance. Narcissism is, is, is being birthed or is taking its first steps here. And it's this idea that I gain elite knowledge and someone else doesn't have it. It's, it's arrogance. It's, it's uppityness. It's eliteness. It's setting aside. It's not being part of the body of Christ. It's coming up and saying, oh, I have a lineage of this or I have a certain education in that. And, and what John is throwing to the church saying, that's not what God's body acts like. That's not what we do. You display love. And so again, do we have biblical love? Yet we must realize that the what of love is driven by the how of obedience. Uh, Jerry Bridges writes this, Love provides the motive for obeying the commands of the law, but the law provides specific direction for exercising love. And so to recognize a biblical overcomer, we move to examining the how, and this is the defining action of the overcomer. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says here, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So how do you know you love the children? Because you love God, which is fascinating. You love God when you love the children. And yes, John is doing a lot of circular reasoning here, trying to drive a point home. And then verse 3 emphasizes even more the point about commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not grievous or burdensome is the word they're using there. But notice something, just as Jerry Bridges noted, we love God so we obey him, but we obey him so we can love him. And that is back and forth. That's exactly what John is writing. This is the behavioral action of the overcomer, keeping God's commands. And I'll say this over and over, but I want to say it up front here. If you don't obey God, 
you don't love God, and it doesn't matter how much you say you love God or pretend to love God or convince us that you love God, if you don't obey God, you do not love God. Aiken notes this, loving God rightly is not just external behavior and outward obedience. It is a longing to do his will from the heart out of gospel gratitude for who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. It is not an I have to obedience. It is I want to obedience. I love to obey the king. And we're all the way back to loving God completely in every one of his roles. And suddenly you obey the king because he's the king, but you don't obey the king because you have to obey the king. You obey the king because you want to obey the king. And I want us to kind of dive into what it means to obey God. Because you go to the military and you can obey your commanding officer. You may hate the guy. You may not enjoy that person. You may not think he has any brains at all or she has any brains at all, but you do what they say and they're happy with you. Stand in line, do the job because you obeyed the command. And we oftentimes think that that's what God wants. He's king, and so we must obey him whether we like to or not. And, and God is not pleased with an external obedience that doesn't capture your heart. He wants you to completely change. And so we're going to look through what we should do with his commands. First, his commands are to be observed. That's the significance of the first keep Verse two, when we love God and keep his commandments, the, the word there could be observed. And, and the, the Greek behind that word is to do this. It means you are going to accomplish or carry out. And the call is for that to be taking place continually. So that verb there, keep, means to observe or to accomplish, not try. It means to do it, to finish it. And the connotation behind that word And the action behind that is that it's again continual. And John's whole push in these five verses is about an active faith, an active obedience, and an active love. His commands are be observed. Don't miss now the connection to love. By this we know we love the church and love God by observing, accomplishing, doing his commands. And I'm going to keep saying that it's not trying it's doing. I have an illustration I've shared before. When my kids disobey, uh, they at some point will say they are sorry. Some of them are quicker with the sorry than others. Uh, they usually use the sorry as a get out of jail free card, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it said, but these sorries come quick and easy, right? What's the easiest thing you can do? You disobey your parents, tell them you're sorry, face no consequences, right? So after a while, I will say this. I've often responded by saying, don't tell me you're sorry. I don't want to hear that you're sorry. Show me by obeying that you're truly sorry. You're sorry for what you've done? Then obey. That will tell me that you are really sorry about disobeying. Don't tell me you're sorry. Show me you're sorry. And that's what John is saying here. You say you love God? You're part of the church. You're admitting to this. He's saying you need to obey, not try. Actually show me that you love God by obeying God's commands, observing. That's the, that's the Greek behind that first word, keep. As one writer notes of obedience, it will always be the direction, though not the perfection of their lives or our lives. And what that means is this. You as a believer are always working to obey. Will we obey God perfectly? 
No, because we wrestle with sin and our sin nature, but we will constantly have that as the direction of our lives. We are going to observe, keep, accomplish his commands. But a begrudging, I have to do this obedience is not what God commands of us. He instead wants our hearts in sync with his commands. And so I'm going to move now to the next word translated keep here, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And it sounds in English like we're repeating the same thing, but he's not. This word has to do with the idea of guarding. His commands are to be observed. And here this second keep in Greek is his commands are to be guarded. My younger kids, I'm talking about the six and the five-year-old, uh, they share a room. And then we have a white dresser in the middle. And we, we put some things in that white dresser, but there started out as one drawer that they could um, hoard junk is what I think, but really it's where they can keep their treasures because all kids have treasures, right? And I'm always amazed by what they think is valuable. I'm like, why do we buy you good Christmas gifts? Because you save this stuff. But either way, this is supposed to be their space. You know, this is where they can keep their treasures. And, and what's interesting is those, those drawers are filled to capacity. And if you're going to get rid of something from that drawer, you do it when they're not there, right? Because if you pull out what is in that drawer, it is guarded and kept. Why is this the precious location? It's right next to their bed. Uh, at night, I've seen them put back the treasure that I thought I was throwing away right back into the safe and close location. And, and they love to have it uh, they don't want to draw down in the, the playroom to store their stuff. When they're going to bed, the last thing they do is open that drawer and shove in the treasure that's there. They guard it. It's, it's what they love to have close. That's the meaning of this word keep. God wants you to take, now forget the whole hoarding thing I said and the junk idea, but you're taking what God has given you. And now fast forward to your nightstand and the things you keep close, and what you put in there. God wants you to value his commands, not in a theoretical way, which all of us sitting here, most people aren't sitting in church saying, I devalue God's commands. Of course you value it uh, from an outside or cold standpoint. But the word keep here is the idea of guard, and it's this idea that you treasure it. So it goes in your nightstand beside you. It's the thing that's closest to you. They are meant to be your precious treasure, not your forced service. See, when it's forced service, we go to God and we say to him, I've obeyed you and I deserve X. I did this and so you give me that because I've served you, so do this. But when you keep his commands in this connotation that we're talking about. They have become your treasure. They are in your nightstand. They are in my kid's drawer on the side. This is what we do. We're to keep his commands, and it's referring to our heart attitude about obedience, but also about the command itself. So not only am I valuing or guarding the fact that I'm obeying my king, I am now guarding and valuing what he values. So now I'm not saying, oh, the king makes us do that. The king makes us do this. No, I see the value in what the king says to do. And I guard that because here's the truth. His commands are to be delightful. 
John words it in reverse, right? They are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not a weight that we have to deal with through the workday. And then we get to shell that off at night, like, oh, finally free of God's commands. I'm so sick of dealing with that. And, and I want to go all the way back to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. It says here, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we're thinking of burden, right? But he keeps saying you're going to be resting. So he's saying as you value his commands, as you put, because if you've ever seen a yoke, it doesn't look light. It doesn't seem like the ox want that on them. But he's trying to do a play on words here where you see, you're going to take my yoke, but you're going to find out it's not a yoke at all. It's not a burden at all. It's not burdensome. It's not that it's lighter than what the world has to offer. It's complete opposite of what the world has to offer. And so he says to us, it is rest. He repeats that over again. Have rest unto your souls. I will give you rest. The world and its sin is what weighs and crushes us down. And when we as believers can realize that his commands are to be our delight, they're the good things in life. This is what we should want. It's the complete opposite of what the world ends up offering. MacArthur notes that the obedience that characterizes a true child of God is not external, ritualistic, legalistic compliance. And I'm afraid that most of us are used to the checklist and we say, as long as I check this list, I'm good. And I will smile while doing it because I'm happy. Right? It's still all fake. That's not what God's looking for. It's not either unwilling, partial, inconsistent, or grudging. So you can pretend and check your list. You can grumble and pretend to check the list or do only half of them and say that's good enough neither of which constitute keeping God's commands. They do not fulfill what John is asking you to do. Instead, as MacArthur notes, loving obedience is from the heart, willing, total, constant, and joyful. Not fabricated joy, real joy, because you as a biblical overcomer will obey in that way. And it's fascinating, right? You have a command and we're used to commands being what you have to do. But then God is saying, you're not obeying me. If you have to do it, you're obeying me because you want to do it. And then you do it. I put here, how would you describe your obedience? And then are we even acting at all in biblical obedience? Are we really obeying as God has asked us to obey? Are we really following through with what he wants from us? See, John is, again, that fascinating author that seems to be walking lightly beside you, and then suddenly the grip is on your shoulder, and he's showing you that this is more involved than we maybe ever thought it was. That God is not just looking on the outside, but God sees the heart. And we've seen that all the way through the Old Testament. He talks about that. And as we come to being his church and we come to this idea of overcoming, it's going to require a transition in ourselves, a change of perspective, a change of priority to where we are seeing God's commands as God sees them, as good, as perfect, as what's best for us. And so the obedience to those commands is something we treasure, not something we're forced to do because God is all powerful. How do you know an, a biblical overcomer? Well, the person is a believer who has their doctrine tied to the complete truth found in Jesus Christ.
This person loves God and his children completely, truly reflecting their Savior and God, who is love. But it's not a love of words. Instead, this person obeys from a heart that treasures God's commands and follows through with them. It is this person, John says, who has overcome the world. I mentioned the idea of an honest evaluation. So as we're closing out, if you gave yourself an honest evaluation, would you say you're a biblical overcomer? Do you have a zeroed in faith that is locked on Christ alone and Christ completely? Do you have a biblical love as John describes love, which is far beyond any description you've seen in any movie book that this world has put out? And actually, oftentimes that's that's been seen and, and even talked about and preached by us because we oftentimes miss the complete depth of biblical love. And then are we obeying like he calls us to obey? not checking a box and not even forced, but a complete obedience that treasures those commands. And the reason we're able to treasure them is because our perspective has changed and we're able to see that what is good and perfect and loving and great and eternally beneficial is God's commands. And so we treasure them as God treasure them. Here's the interesting thing. And this is the assumption John makes. If you're a believer you're an overcomer. And so this is not something you say, yeah, I'm a believer, but I don't want to be in the overcoming category. This is not an either or. He drives in to who truly believes and you're going to see these characters manifested, characteristics, and you're going to see them growing. I want to close with a quote by John Stott. He states this, Christian believers are God's children born from above. God's children are loved by all who love God. Those who love God also keep his commands. They keep his commands because they overcome the world. And they overcome the world because they are Christian believers born from above. Let's pray together. And Father, thank for this time we have to gather together, to study your word, to focus in on what it means to be an overcomer. John has walked us through some key components through all of his book. And we recognize in your word that he has pointed constantly to you and to a complete faith in in who you are and who you've said you are. He's given no allowance for culture to change the definition of you and your work and what you ask of us. We will, as believers, acknowledge you as prophet, priest, and king. We will obey you, but that obedience will not be begrudging. It'll be a loving obedience, a joyful obedience, because we as believers will grow and know that your commands are perfect, no matter what our world says around us, that your take on things is exactly the true take. That's the one without the distorted view of what's going on, whether it's sin, truth, etc. But instead, it's the clear view of what sin is and what truth is. And here he comes showing us what it means to be an overcomer. And as we close out the the service as we walk out into our daily lives. I hope we will return to to a passage that is about practical living. It's active. It is the today type of faith, and it's asking questions of what are you believing about the Savior? How are you obeying? What are you displaying? And we're called in the mix of our daily life to be living out your character, to be your ambassadors, to be more like you. Confront our hearts, convict us, help us grow in your likeness, in your precious and holy name. 
Amen.